the hard shoulder. All new stock. With the all new Nissan Juke. The coupe crossover by Nissan. Nissan. Innovation that excites. You're very welcome back to the hard shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until 7 o'clock now. My guest this week for the Thursday interview has, if you can believe all of this, 10 Oscars and 25 BAFTAs associated with his film production career. He has worked in public policy in a huge amount of different areas. Education, environment, creative arts, you name it, since 1998. He has a CBE, a knighthood, and was appointed to the House of Lords, who currently, I, I could go on, he currently chairs... Atticus Education, it bridges the gap between technology and education, delivering seminars to universities around the world from his home studio in Skibbereen in County Cork. Lord David Putnam, you're very welcome to The Hard Shoulder. It's good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. And bear in mind, I do not have an Olympic gold medal, but I feel today... No, you, you, I'm sure you do. do. How, how, how does it feel to be a, a West Corkonian today? It's fantastic. I've always train literally, where, where I live, I live on the river, and they train up and down in front of us and I feel as I'm I'm part of it I'm, a, I'm very fortunate being vice president of Skibbereen Rowing Club so for us it's massive it is it's one of the great days of my life oh really this is one of the highlights of your life absolutely absolutely well that that, that is that is it that is great to hear that you're getting in on the act and I mean no sense of of divided loyalties you're you're firmly supporting the Irish rowers 100%. I mean, in that, you know, they're part of my community. The impact this is going to have on Skib generally is will be phenomenal. It was it was enough five years ago when we when the boys came back with a silver medal. But I think, yeah, the the impact on Skibbereen now and in the future and on the young people in, in, in Skibbereen in terms of their ambition is incalculable. A lot of us uh, in the rest of Ireland wondering, like, what is it about the water in Skibbereen that they're producing so many rowers? Uh, are you any closer to understanding? I think it's the amount of chlorine. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I, we, we've said it multiple times today and we'll say it again. Congratulations to Fidget and Paul. Uh, what a fabulous achievement overnight. And uh, we still have a, a good solid week and a bit left of the Olympics and plenty of coverage. And Kelly Harrington out tonight. Uh, I know uh, another medal hope and uh, some of our athletes, uh, Nadia Power, and Tom Barr and others. So, so, so plenty of excitement still to come, but uh, certainly, yeah, the highlight thus far, uh, our, our West Cork rowers. Uh, listen, on, on, on that topic, we might start there. I mean, do, do you consider yourself now a fully-fledged West Corkman or, or are you still a blow-in in your own mind? Um, I, that's, I think, in a sense, in the eye of the beholder. I don't feel like a blow-in. No one allows me to feel like a blow-in. I feel, I'm felt, and I feel all the time, very much part of this community. Um, Patsy and I work as hard as we can for the community. It's where I'll pop my clogs. And I'm just sitting here at the moment waiting, I've got my number, waiting for our citizenship to be confirmed. So that, that kind of seals the deal as far as I can say. Oh, well, so, so you've gone through the citizenship process and, and you're waiting for confirmation. Yeah, I mean, obviously everything got delayed over with, with COVID. But uh, yeah, I think I'd be surprised and disappointed if it doesn't arrive you know, next couple of months. And was that a, a practical thing post-Brexit, just to have the citizenship, or or, or was it uh, something deeper and more meaningful? Uh, the, the latter. I, I was I fought tooth and nail against Brexit. I still think it's the most shocking in, in every respect, moral and economic uh, this decision. Uh, I couldn't have tried harder in the House of Lords. I had a lot of late nights and God knows what else. Um, I think it's a shocking decision. And on the other hand, it kind of answered a hearts of one problem for us. I mean, we've been here a long time now, 32 years. Uh, it just, as I said, in a sense, it sealed the deal. This is where we live. This is our community. These are people we love. Why on earth uh, have we taken so long 
to, uh, to, to, to make that leap. Part of it was the complexity of being in the House of Lords, um, you know, commuting every week, and the fact that some kind of slightly unanswered questions within the House of Lords as to at what point you are an aunt or should and shouldn't be a peer. So all those problems began to answer themselves, and for me, totally answered themselves uh, with Brexit. Well, listen, we might catch up with you again. Post-citizenship ceremony, uh, uh, given how important it is going to be uh, for yourself and the family. How did you end up in West Cork in the first place? A pure fluke. I'd done a movie called um, Local Hero, and we'd shot it in the west coast of Scotland. I'm a Londoner, you know, I spent my entire life in cities. And the experience of working for 10 weeks uh, in a coastal, small coastal community in, in the west coast of Scotland was a revelation for me. So for about three years, Patsy and I drove up and down the west coast of Scotland uh, looking for something which we couldn't find or anything we did find we couldn't afford. And then by God's good grace, in 1988, we did a similar trip for the first time up the west coast of uh, of Ireland. And uh, by a series of absolutely extraordinary uh, adventures or misadventures, uh, we found the home that we now live in. Uh, you couldn't, you kind of couldn't make it up. It was, a, it was almost a ridiculous series of uh, coincidences, but uh, obviously it was meant to be. And I, I'm, I'm always interested in that kind of sense of dual identity. I'm, I wonder because West Cork, that there's quite an, you know, an itinerant population there of people kind of coming in and out from other parts of the world, particularly from the UK. I mean, at what point did you get a sense that? The people in West Cork, your neighbours now and your own community, it's quite clear you consider them your own community, did they recognise you as 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 much more than a blow-in, as someone who's, you know, this is more than a holiday home to the Putnams? I think what made the difference was War of the Buttons. Uh, in 93, so I've been here, what, four years by that time, uh, we'd, um, I, I, I shot the whole of War of the Buttons here, literally from home. And that did solidify things a very great deal because we employed literally half the town, including nearly all the kids in the town as well. <laughs> and uh, I just got to know everybody and you, you know, we could walk around and it was a, a subject of conversation all the time. The film came out, the community loved the film and we really did love the film and adopted the film. So I think that was what uh, sealed that initial part of it. Prior to that, it probably would have been fair to say we were holiday makers and we were blowings. But I think that from... From more of the buttons onwards, I'd like to think Patsy and I were more, more than that. Uh, if we can go back a little bit in time, I mean, you, you, you were born during the Blitz, is that right? Yep, yep, I'm a Blitz baby. A Blitz baby. And and what was life like growing up then, I suppose, in post-war London? Grey, very black and white. It's like, you know, the, the, the black and white movies of that era, I think, sum it up very well. Quite dull. We were, but Patsy and I both. We were at school together. We were brought up in the um, in the suburbs. It was very unexciting. And you, the reasonable expectation is you would do some variation on what your parents did. My great good fortune was that my dad happened to be a journalist, and so from quite a young age, I got to see through his eyes a bigger world. And I think he encouraged me to embrace that bigger world. I was a useless um, student at school. I left school when I was sixteen. Um, but I discovered that I really liked work. I mean, um, I was invigorated by work and I took myself off to night school for four years and literally self-educated. And I think, in a sense, it's the best thing I could have done. Had I gone through a normal channel and gone into a university, I think my life, looking back, my life would have been far narrower and far less uh, less interesting, actually. And is, is that a criticism of, of the nature of, of the curriculum at the time or was it just something, you know individual to you that you were never going to respond well to it? I think there's a whole lot of things to tell the truth. I think uh, 
I think Britain suffered from a sort of exhaustion after World War II, um, uh, which did, certainly didn't help. And people just, in, in a sense, grateful to be alive. I know that my parents, you know, my dad, I didn't meet my dad till I was five. So my parents were recreating their lives when I was, uh, when I was very young. Um, so, the, you know, one of the things I get worried about nowadays is that they were grateful. They actually were grateful for the fact they were able to have state, reasonably stable um, lower middle class, middle class lives. And, and that was enough for them. But I would say my great good fortune was my father had a, a bigger vision of the world and encouraged me to, to uh, you know, follow that and, um, uh, and, and push the boat out for myself. And how did that bigger vision of the world then lead you to the, the, the film industry? Oh, um, I have the 60s to blame. I, what, <laughs> what happened was I became a messenger in an advertising agency and I just did very well. I was very lucky, right, right place, the right time, the right years. This is the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And things kind of exploded around me and I was working with very good people uh, to the extent that, and it's, this probably couldn't have happened any other decade, by 1967, I kind of, I was 26, I felt, well, I've done that. <laughs> Next. And the only other thing I had a real passion for was um, photography and film. Uh, so in 1968, I went to see The Graduate. And I looked at the film, and I really enjoyed it. I thought, you know, there's nothing in this that I couldn't, that my colleagues and I couldn't do. And at the time, I was working with Alan Parker and Ridley Scott and Hugh Hudson and a bunch of us, all of whom, you know, loved the idea of being in the movie industry. But the movie industry was in Hollywood. And we were in North London. It sorry, sorry, sorry to go across you. I mean, Ridley Scott and Top Parker, they were all working in the ad industry with you. Yeah. No, oh, no, wow. we were, I, I, I was a group head and I had uh, Alan Parker, Charles Saatchi, uh, Ridley worked with us. Um, Hugh Hudson was making commercials for us. <laughs> uh, it was a very, very sm- small group. London felt very small in those days. It, was a, it, it, it may sound odd, but it was a very, very tight group. We all knew each other. And and this leap then into the the, the film industry, I mean, a lot of us might look at a film and think, yeah, I'd love to get into that. I'd love to make that. And and myself and my friends might have a skill set. It's quite another thing to to take the abstract and make it tangible. I mean, was it very straightforward? No, uh, quite a lot of luck involved, I think, in hindsight. But also a sort of a sense in that that period, in the mid-60s, that there was nothing to fear, that you could try things. If it didn't work out, you could do something else. I mean, for me... I always had advertising, and I knew I had a good reputation advertising. I had advertising to fall back on if it all went reels of cotton. As it happened, it didn't, but as much by luck and by judgment. But, um, you know, I managed to get my foot in the door. Then I managed to wedge the door open. Then I managed to kick the other bits of the door open. And uh, I, I one day woke up and found myself a film producer. Uh, and uh, and I should say for people, sorry for people who are just tuning in, that Lord David Putnam is my guest uh, for the Thursday interview this week, and, and and that career as a film producer. I mean, when we go through the filmography, you know, the, the Mission, The Killing Fields, Chariots of Fire, Midnight Express, all these amazing uh, films. War, the buttons you imagined, you, you mentioned, which ingratiated yourself uh, so much uh, to your to, to your West Cork neighbours. I mean, what struck me in advance of this conversation, David, was was how many different careers you've had. I mean, you had your advertising career, you had your career in the film industry. That might be enough for most people. Uh, you, you then embarked on this whole other area of working in public policy. Tell me about that. Well, I'd started actually when I was in the film industry. I'd always been interested in politics from a, a relatively young age. Uh, and I was working within the Labour Party, working on policy issues. And you know, we were a long way from power. So the 92 election, for example, was a real aha moment because we expected to win and we lost. And I had to really kind of drag myself back up and say, well, what am I going well, am I prepared to do another five years? And I decided to. Well, during those five years, they were actually extremely rewarding. I worked with a group of people 
and we did develop a whole cultural policy. In fact, the phrase, the culture, the creative industries, it's something that was invented in, in, my, in my house. And we were helped by a number of people. Uh, Michael D. Higgins was hugely helpful to us. He was, um, he was a minister of culture here at the time, massively helpful in terms of helping us formulate um, arts policy, creative industries policy. So I'd done all that. And then slightly out of the blue, to be honest, I was asked by, um, uh, by Tony Blair if I'd like to go to the House of Lords. And once I'd said yes, and once I'd realized how onerous that job was, it, there was, it was very clear I wasn't gonna be able to double up doing that and movies. And so uh, it, it drew a natural conclusion actually to my movie career. And, and when you went into the House of Lords and when you, I suppose, took up politics and policy as a full-time job, were there particular areas going into it that you knew you wanted to work on or was it a case of, I'll go in and I'll see what tickles my fancy? Well, two things, it's an interesting question. I've, I've never really been asked before, but um, I think there was an expectation from the government that I would engage with not just the creative industries, but the film industry in particular. And I really didn't want to do that. I felt I've left this. I want to move on. And by luck, uh, David Blunkett, who had been made education secretary, uh, called me and said, look, you know, we'd like to have someone working within us at the education department who isn't a natural educationist and who's critical of the system. This comes back to one of your earlier questions. And I signed up to that. And it was one of the best things I could have done. I spent five very happy years working at the Department of Education particularly uh, focusing on teacher, teacher retention, teacher morale, uh, the, the, whole, the whole business of how did you make teachers more valuable within society? Do you think we value teachers enough today in society? I think in Ireland, the answer to that is yes and no. I think there is a, there's a sort of awe uh, with which teachers are treated. Uh, but at the same time, I think that the, the opportunity that teachers have to change society to engage with society is something that parents here in Ireland are somewhat reluctant to um, to fully embrace. I think teachers could be a, an even more powerful um, influence on the way society develops, but I think that involves change. And I think quite reasonably, as with most societies, there is a slight weariness or um, worry about too much change. But in fact, the education world is exploding under us. And here in Ireland, we've got an opportunity to grab that and run with it but we'll only grab it and run with it if we can carry the teaching profession with us. And that hasn't quite happened yet. Uh, 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 other passions of yours as well uh, are connectivity and technology. And it strikes me as well that over the last 18 months, uh, there's been a mixture of all of those areas about education and connectivity and technology. Suddenly, you know, the classroom had to be beamed from one person's living room into the living room of 20 or 30 other people. Do, do you see or would you like to see some of those kind of changes being made more permanent, a, a, a better embrace of technology in the classroom, or are we already good at it? No, I, very much so. Again, it's a cracking question, because uh, my greatest single fear is we will slip back to where we were pre, pre-pandemic. The truth is we've learned a lot of lessons about what does and indeed doesn't work uh, through technology. Uh, and I think if we don't grip that, if we don't look at and say, you know, there's some things we can do better without any doubt at all. There's ways we can use technology which will enhance learning and enhance the entire educational process. But there's other things we're going to be more, you know, more thoughtful about, more considered about. So I'd like to see a, a more hybrid, a more hybrid use of technology, but grasping the quite extraordinary um, opportunities that it offers. I'll give you a simple example. Ten years ago. I equipped myself here in Skib, and you'll remember I was a um, digital champion for Ireland for a while, and I was able to use that role 
to ensure that at least around here in West Cork, we upped our game on technology. So I've been teaching using technology for 10 years. One of the things discovered during COVID is that I can actually bring in as guests into my lectures, people from all over the world. Frankly, probably slightly unimaginatively, I hadn't really considered that before, but I'm, I think that the lectures I'm giving, the seminars I'm giving are more vivid, more interesting, I'm involving more people than I would have ever believed possible, even just two years ago. And and that connectivity as well, that breeds life into towns like Skibbereen, doesn't it? Because it allows a younger generation of people to remain in the area, something they probably uh, didn't think they could do up until relatively I think recently. It's, uh, again, it's a hugely important point. Um, I and a number of, of colleagues who did a lot more than me really uh, created the Ludgate Centre here in Skibbereen. Once we had this uh, thousand megs of connectivity and uh, the whole purpose, the thrust behind that was uh, or the, the energy generating that was from people who just didn't want their children to have the same limited set of options that they'd had. That's to say, in order to flourish, in order to move out into the world, it was necessary to leave the region. And the whole point was, how can we get really great, ambitious, um, talented young people to stay here, forge careers here and bring their families up here? And I think that's an ambition that was at least, has been at least half realized. Of course, the dark side to all of this uh, technology is misinformation and disinformation, an area I know as well you've expressed concern about. Yeah, I mean, I had a, I had two bits of luck. Again, I'm a lucky person. Um, I sat on the House Laws Committee looking at the future of AI, and that gave me a kind of crash course into an area that probably I would never have fully understood or appreciated. I still don't fully understand it, but it certainly gave me a grounding. And then I was asked by the government to chair a select committee looking at the relationship between digital technology and democracy. And that was a year's work. We took evidence from all over the world. And I did come away from that with some pretty clear views about the benefits and disbenefits, very significant disbenefits of the digital world. I mean, I, I, what fears have you? Like, I, I, it, do, you, do you see that misinformation is disinformation as kind of a, an ongoing thing that we'll always have to, to battle with? Or, or do you see it as such a problem at the moment? And the problem being of such a scale that that it threatens to undermine our, our kind of shift to digital life. Well, I ended up entitling my report to the government, uh, the resurrection of trust. I was originally going to call it the restoration of trust. But the truth was the evidence we took was so serious and the the absence of trust or the destruction of trust through misinformation, disinformation was so serious. That's, that's why I chose the word resurrection. It struck me that we've got to rethink and reconsider our entire relationship with the truth and with trust in order to be, build communities and indo- indeed, I mean, it may sound simplistic, to secure democracy. Otherwise, democracy is pretty fragile, pretty frail. If we allow lies and mistruth and misinformation to flourish, the first and most serious victim is likely to be democracy. And you saw that vividly on the 6th of January in, um, in Washington. Well, listen, unfortunately, we're kind of tight on time. And before I let you go, I want to go full circle because as as vice president of the Skibreen Rowing Club, uh, can I assume you're the chief party organiser for the homecoming? I'm not going to be. I'm going to be. I'm going to be chief party enjoyer of the homecoming. I think it's going to be fantastic. I have no doubt. It was pretty fantastic last time. But the the club runs so well because it's got such an extraordinary bedrock of dedicated people who make it run. I mean, not just Dominic Capesey, the the coach, who's brilliant. But the, the committee, the people that support this relatively small club in the middle of this relatively small town are amazing people. They're going to make sure that this is a celebration never to forget.
Yeah, I'm sure it will be a celebration to remember. Listen, we are out of time now, David. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. We got through a huge amount there and I still only feel we scratched the surface. Lord David Putnam, my guest this week for the Thursday interview. That is our lot for today's edition of The Hard Shoulder. My thanks to the production team. Thank you to everybody who got in touch. Off the ball, they're up next and I'll be back on Tuesday from four. Have a good one. 